I love that song. I uh, just takes me uh, back to when my friend, uh, our friend Kent Elo, passed away, and that song I like. I listened to it like a thousand times in the midst of that. Just, like repeat, repeat. I will rise. Amen. If you've come to Bethel Church for any amount of time, then uh, you know what our little mantra is that we go back to over and over and over again. Shall we say it together? Okay, it's all about him. And there are lots of reasons why uh, our church, and I believe any biblical church, will hold that truth central One of the main reasons, though, is that it tells us something that is gloriously true. And that is everything is about God. That the ultimate reality, the ultimate reality is God. Or another way to say it is that everything is theology. Everything, everything is theological. And by that, don't get this sort of like, oh, it's all philosophical, it's all ethereal. No, 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 no. This is the most practical truth you will ever hear. Everything is about God. As C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity like I believe in the sun, not just because I can see it, but by it I see everything else. When we have a God-centered perspective on all reality and on our lives, now we see everything in light of him. We see everything relating to him because he is the ultimate reality that defines everything else. And because everything relates to him, that means everything has a sacredness to it and everything has a meaning to it. As Romans 11 says, for from him and through him and to him are all Things. It is at the, God is at the center of everything, which makes everything sacred and everything has purpose and meaning. And in a world where nothing has sacredness and nothing has meaning, this is a refreshing thought. God is at the center of it all. Now, to understand our passage today, you have to realize that Paul is coming at this from this perspective. He, he always is, but in particular, He is coming at this from the perspective that everything is theology. Now, I can probably guess somebody here thinking to themselves, no, I think I can think of a few things that are not theology. Like Pastor Steve, come on. Not everything's theology. No, no, that's what I'm saying. No, you can't mean everything. Yeah, 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 that's what I'm saying. No, no, no. Like, Like what? Well, sex. You're not suggesting that is as well, are you? Well, actually, other than salvation, I would suggest to you that this is perhaps the most theologically rich experience that human beings can have. There is more to learn about God, think about God, rejoice about God in that than perhaps in anything else. So yes, very much so. It is either all about him or it is not. And so does all include that? Yes, it does. 
And 1 Corinthians, and, and we're doing a series in 1 Corinthians, and we've come now to chapter 7. And so, if you're wondering why I'm talking about this, it's because it's the next passage in the scriptures, which is one of the beauties of expository preaching. There is no accusation of just coming up with these topics on my own. Uh, we're just working our way through the text, and Paul now is going to address uh, questions that the Corinthians had. And that's something to realize in the big picture of the, of, of the book that chapters 1 through 6 are, is Paul dealing with issues that he had with the Corinthians. Chapter 7 and really following, Paul is addressing questions that the Corinthians had for him. They were needing some clarification on many issues, and this is one of them. Remember, Paul was writing this letter in response to a letter that he received from them. And so he now is going to address the questions that they have. So I'm just going to read our passage uh, in its entirety, and then we will get into it. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 5. Remember, everything is theology. Everything is theology. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote. Okay, so there we have the reference to the fact that he's now talking about things that they asked him. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now this is going to be a fun message, don't you think? The first thing to notice here is in the big picture what Paul is or what the Corinthians were wondering about. It's much like if we had a Q&A here, like where you could anonymously write questions that you had. And let's say the Apostle Paul was the guest speaker doing the Q&A. And, uh, you know, I was wondering about this and I was wondering about that. What percentage do you think that even from our own congregation that their questions would in some way, our questions would in some way relate to marriage, relationships, sexuality, questions about should I get married? Should I stay married? Who should I marry? These kind of things dominate uh, the, the questions that, that we have. I, for years, I've spoken to this camp in Georgia, and we, I do a Q&A with them, and of course, these are teenagers, and pretty much all they want to know about is dating and sex. And the, So uh, this is, the, here's the point. The Corinthians are not really that different from us. And that human relationships and matters revolving around marriage and sexuality are where the rubber meets the road for us. And so they wanted to know how does our Christianity impact the way that, you know, these aspects of our lives, which is the very same questions that many of us have today. They needed apostolic guidance, and I would suggest that we probably do here as well. So they're not really all that different from us. Now, the chapter begins with a statement that on the surface would seem to contradict many other passages of Scripture. Here's how Paul begins. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. 
Now, if you just read that, on the surface, it would seem to say that God frowns on human sexuality or that God frowns even on sexual intimacy in marriage. And many people down through church history have taken this uh, perspective, this interpretation on it. Uh, Here's some examples. Clement of Alexandria, an early church father, put strict rules around the days and the hours that married couples in his churches were allowed to be intimate. Now, I sort of wonder how that'd go if I did that. I, I, not so well, I'm guessing. But that's what he did. Augustine, who we owe a massive debt to theologically, he got so much right, he's one of the most significant theologians in the history of the church, got this wrong. Uh, because he suggested that original sin is actually transmitted by, by sexual intercourse. And so the result of that was that for centuries, and even to this day, there was a kind of climate in the church and amongst Christians where this is a little dirty, or this is a little, it's so sensuous, it's so fleshly, God can't be happy with it, he's sort of embarrassed by it. Early church leader Ambrose said marriage was honorable, but chastity was more honorable. And so the result of this has been, now we're going back over the centuries, that oftentimes in the church it has promoted a perspective on sexuality where uh, uh, celibacy and virginity was more spiritual than those fleshly-minded people that decided to get married. Even this week, I saw in the news, I don't know if you did, it was front page news about the uh, Roman Catholic priest who uh, switched to to be an Episcopal priest because then he could be with a woman that he loved. I don't know if you saw that or not, but that happened this week. So, and where does that whole discussion come from? Right here. So this is a very contemporary issue. The news is still being affected by the very thing that we're talking about here today. So... What is it? Is it is it is 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 celibacy more spiritual? Is that or is is marriage kind of a second class sort of thing? You're not quite as spiritual. God sort of is looking down on you a little bit, or not? I remember a date that I went on many years ago. And by the way, if you're visiting here today, you need to know that I am single, so it's okay that I talk about dating. If you're wondering, um, I, I went on a date many years ago, and. Uh, this was a woman that I was actually quite interested in and excited about going on this date with her. And so I remember sitting across the table from her over the meal. And at some point in the meal, she informed me that for spiritual reasons, she had taken a vow of celibacy. Check, you know, uh, <laughs> and of course, a possible question in, the, is that, in that is, did she take the vow of celibacy before we met or after we met? <laughs> yeah. So it's easy to come to this verse in chapter 7 from that kind of a perspective, and to wrongly read it, that it is saying what, on the surface, it is saying. Now, here's one of the things to know about interpreting the Bible, and you can do this in your own devotional time. If you're wondering what a passage means, 
one of the key principles of biblical interpretation is that you interpret the Bible with the Bible. So if there's an obscure passage that you're not sure how to take it, you go to more clear passages in the Bible that teach on the same thing, and you see what they say because the Bible is not going to contradict itself. And so, then, are there other passages that talk about this in a, in a different way? And the answer is there are tons of passages that talk about this and, and would, not, would, would be an apparent contradiction. For example... We go back to Genesis chapter 1. When God created everything, he stops, he looks over it all, and he says, it is very good. And that declaration includes human sexuality. Genesis 2. God institutes marriage, and here's what he says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, that one flesh means lots of things for sure, but it most certainly includes sexuality. We go to Proverbs. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her and on it goes. So uh, there's a command right there. 1 Timothy 4. Now, the Spirit expressly says, says that in later times... Some will depart from the faith. And what will they be teaching? Here's what they'll be teaching. They will be forbidding marriage. You see that in verse 3. Okay, so they will say, this is bad. This is less than spiritual. Hebrews 13, 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. So that's lifting it up, actually, and saying that it is pure and it is holy. And then, of course, you have the entire book of Song of Solomon, which is a song, a, a, a letter, a song celebrating uh, the beauty of marital intimacy as a picture, I think, ultimately of Christ, which we will get into. So when we read, we come then to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, and it says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. We need to keep in mind these other passages and then come back to this and say, now, wait a second, what's going on here? Here is what is going on. And, and I know we have different translations here this morning. And some, actually I know of one that does this. The ESV highlights this. I, I don't know if there's any others that do. But if you have an ESV Bible, you will, if you look closely, and that's why you've got to look at your Bibles closely. If you look closely in verse 1, you'll notice that when it comes to the phrase, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations, that there are quotation marks around it. Do you see that? Quotation marks. Hmm. I think quotation marks means that he's quoting something, Right? Well, the question would then be, who is he quoting? Who he is quoting here is the letter that the Corinthians had written to him. So Paul now, he says, now concerning the things to, with, uh, about which you wrote. And now he quotes one of the things that they asked him about. And that they said, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. He is not endorsing that. He is referring to it so that now he can give them the proper teaching on it. So what was going on then in Corinth was that there were married couples who were abstaining sexually in their relationship. And they were doing that because they believed that it was good for that not to happen. And that is now what Paul is addressing, is these married couples abstaining within marriage. So here's verse 2 now is his response. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, 
Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, one of the things to love about Paul is he's a guy that lives in the real world. This is a man who understood the way that things are. And he probably was married in his past. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. And to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you, you had to be married. Uh, so he is either a widower. His wife may have left him when he converted to Christianity. We don't know. He's not single as an apostle. But Paul understood how this works. And he understood the power of sexual temptation, especially in a city like Corinth, where they worshipped it, literally, and there was temptation all around, all the time, to forget about being pure within marriage and to step out and to satisfy those desires outside of marriage. So what then is the solution? What is the Christian answer to the temptation? And here it is, that each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. Now, have there obviously means more than have. It's have. Understand? Okay. This is like last night in the message, in the message last night. People weren't sure if they were to like laugh or not. Or they, everyone just kind of sat there looking at me like we are saying nothing tonight. So here's point number one, that sexual intimacy in marriage is a protection against sexual temptation outside of marriage. Now, right now, I would have to believe that the singles that are here, the blood, the, there's, the blood is starting to boil. And there is a desire, perhaps, within you to unite with other singles and to form some sort of a, a mob and to riot uh, at this very point, because the thought is, well, what about us? Well, point number one, uh, I'd like to answer that as I feel your pain. Point number two is (laughs) to realize something about sexuality and marriage. People who marry purely to satisfy sexual desire are silly. They are silly. Look at a Hollywood marriage, for example, okay? Let's just think about this for a moment. Typical Hollywood marriage. Very, you know, handsome, debonair, suave, you know, good-looking actor meets very gloriously beautiful, wonderful actress, and they, uh, you know, they love each other and decide to get married you can almost set your watch can't you like when from the moment that they get married you could i mean you almost could be like okay my my calendar is off of my watch two months max right and then two months later maybe it's a year or something like that what happens off they go it doesn't work why doesn't it work because sexual passion was never designed by God to be the foundation of marriage. And if you marry for that reason, you will find yourself in a very desperate place because it's not a foundation to hold it up. God never designed it to be that way. Yet, while it is not a foundation, it is very important. And Paul brings up one of the reasons that it is so important is that it is a powerful protection for the marriage. To keep you together and to keep 
you from not looking outside of the marriage for the intimacy that you that you want. And so each man should have have his wife, and each wife should have her husband. There's a biblical command. He goes on now in verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. Well, now how does this work? Verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So here now, we come to realize that the Christian teaching on sexuality could not be any more opposite than the perspective that is predominant in the world, and especially the Western culture around us. Because what is taught in the media and what is portrayed in the movies and what is even, I think, subtly suggested in uh, sex education classes in the schools is that sexuality is primarily about me meeting my needs. So again, let's just think about uh, think about the ideal man in our culture. The ideal man in our culture would be sort of that studly uh, man who, you know, sort of the uh, James Bond sort of guy who he just sort of raises his eyebrows and women want to take their clothes off, right? And he can, he can get any woman that he wants, and he just sort of lives sort of this swinging kind of lifestyle that is so cool, right? Or we think about women whose immodesty suggests a sexually aggressive sort of vixen. That's kind of the, she's, that's cool. In each case, their sexuality is about them, it is about that, it's about, if I could be one of them, me, right? It is about me and the meeting of my needs and my body and my desires being satisfied. So in our culture then, it is a self-centered sexuality that is taught. And this was also true in the ancient culture. I mean, this, remember Paul's writing this letter 2,000 years ago. And in that culture... It was a male-dominated culture where sex was a man's right and it was a woman's responsibility. And if you remember, I read the quote uh, two weeks ago from the Greek, the first century Greek guy who described the way that it was and how every man has his mistresses uh, for pleasure and he has his concubines for concubinage. I remember that word as well. And he had a, a wife or two to take care of the kids. What is that perspective? This whole thing is about me. It is about the man meeting his desires. And it reduced women to objects. It stripped them of personhood, which they obviously clearly have. They were objects of men's desire, much like modern-day pornography. And so this is the world that Paul writes to. And in this world, there would have been no more radical statement to say on this subject than to say that actually your body is not yours. And the sex is not about your desires being met. That it, it is something else. That there is something bigger and more grand behind this than merely sexual satisfaction. And now we're at the point where everything is theology. Okay, let's bring this to bear now on this point. What is this gift from God actually all about. Here's what it's about, my friends. Sex is a portrait of God. Sex is a portrait of God. God designed it in the context 
of a covenantal, agape, marital commitment where the husband and the wife paint a picture in the intimacy of God himself. Now, we've already talked about this. We talked about it two weeks ago when we, we talked about how one part of this reflection is the fact that God is three in one, the, the Trinity, three in one, plurality in unity, and, and sexual intimacy is also plurality in unity. I hope I don't have to draw pictures. You know what I mean, right? Okay, you're still quiet, but it's still fine. Um, I'll assume you know what I mean. Now, here's what I want to do. Let's take this a step closer to the essence of who God is. And this, by the way, is something, I, this, is, this has been a discovery for me about God. One of the biggest, last couple years, like what is God like? Who is he? This, this is a big one. Who is God at the core of his being? Who is he really? At the core of who God is, God is love. God is agape. First John 4, 8. Now, stop right now because you're thinking to yourself, oh yes, it's a wonderful truth. God is love and that means he loves me. Okay, we're not talking about you. Get, uh, the Corinthian mindset gone. This is not about you. We're talking about God. And that within the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that they love one another, and that this love that they have for one another is not selfish love. It is others-oriented for the joy and the gladness of the other. So that the Father is agapeing the Son and is desiring to bring happiness, to glorify, to rejoice in, the son, and that the son is not about himself. He is, he is thinking about the father and the spirit and wanting to bring gladness to them and communicating with them in a way that is, that is eternally joyous and the spirit as well with the father and the son. And that God, within the Godhead, there are real relationships that are not about them specifically, the, the individual person, but about the other. That God, here it is now, that God is at the core of his being self-giving. Love, at the essence of what it is, is self-giving. And that this self-giving in the Trinity is the source of their joy. Now, the clearest example that we have of how their relationship works in self-giving is the cross. Because in the cross, we have the Son who is, for the joy of the Father and obedience to the Father, comes to earth and dies. He gives of himself. And of course, we look at this, we say, well, he died on the cross for our sins. Absolutely true. He died to save his people from their sins. Absolutely true. He bore the sins. He was atonement. Absolutely true. But there is also a whole other thing that's going on, that this is also about relationships within the Trinity. And so Paul, writing now in Philippians 2, very famous passage, describes how the cross is about inter-Trinitarian relationship. Here's what he says. Let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. 
but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that's describing now the son, in obedience to the father, humbles himself and, and, and goes to the cross. Now here is the father's response to the son's obedience. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So can you see this? This is glorious. This is a glorious truth. The Father, uh, the Father loves the Son, seeks to glorify Him, and displaying His obedience gives the purposes in Him to come to earth and do all that He did on the cross. The Son, wanting to glorify the Father, again self-giving, willingly does this even to the point of death. The Father, in response to the Son, exalts the Son and gives him a name that is above every name. And the purpose of it, in the end, is that all may see that Jesus is Lord. But in the end, who gets the glory? To the glory of God the Father. And so the cross is really, at its foundation, about the Trinity. And the Father and the Son, self-giving, selfless for the good and the glory of the other. That, my friends, is love. Greater love is no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friend. Why is that the greatest love? Because it is the ultimate giving of yourself, selflessness, for the joy and for the benefit of the other. And this is what God is like. And so the cross, now hang with me here, the cross symbolizes a self-giving God. Guess what else symbolizes by divine design and intent? The self-giving God. Sexual intimacy in marriage is a picture of what God is like. It is to be others-oriented. It is agape love, which willingly lays aside the selfish pursuit of satisfaction for the joy and the satisfaction of the spouse. This is how it is supposed to work. And so, this is what I'm suggesting to you, and, and married couples I want you to get this, that your bedroom is like a seminary. Not cemetery. <laughs> a seminary it is all theology you are living out a theology in your bedroom now you could say but wait a second it does say that we have rights does it not say that we have rights i have rights in this well you know it does actually the word there for conjugal right uh literally means debt or or obligation the wife has conjugal rights the husband has Conjugal rights. But here now is the paradox. In the seeking of those rights, the wife does not have authority over her own body. That's what he says. And the husband also does not have authority over his body. And so we have then this kind of dance, if you want to call it that, where the, the wife with a right denies herself and her own authority in the seeking of the benefit of the husband. And the husband does the same for the wife. And they give themselves to the other for their 
joy. And I want you to realize it says give. You see that? It's give. You do not take. It is not take. So that if you leave here today, and I speak pick on the husband specifically, if you leave here today, and as you're walking out the door, you get in the car, whatever, you get home, and you're like, honey, you know, the Bible says that we are not merely to be hearers of the word, but doers as well. If that is your attitude at all, I want to tell to you, say to you, you have missed the point entirely. This is not about you. Not. Neither one about you primarily. The beauty in this description is that each spouse is seeking to meet the needs of the other without respect to themselves. And of course we say, well then who does that sound like? It sounds like God, doesn't it? God in the Trinity and God in salvation. And that's exactly the point. Everything is theology. It is a portrait of God. And so as married couples try to outgive the other, every marital intimacy paints a little portrait of the Godhead. So that the more selfless the spouse in the bedroom, the more beautiful the picture, and secondarily, the more enjoyable the experience. And this, by the way, is why all sex outside of marriage is wrong. Sex outside of marriage takes and fails to give. It takes marital sexual intimacy without giving marital commitment. And that is why it is wrong. It is a worship of the self. It is selfish at the core. All right, now listen. Everything is theology. And because of that, not only should Christians make the best spouses, they also should make the best lovers. Christians rejoice in the love of God through Jesus Christ. We have tasted of this agape love. We know what selfless love is. We, we, we love Jesus Christ. And now, in marriage, Christian marriage, the spouses have the opportunity to live out their theology in the most personal and intimate of ways. But it all comes back to God. And so, couples, you've got to realize that. You've got to think backwards from uh, the experience. It is not about you. It is about God. So to understand marital sex, you have to understand marital love. But to understand marital love, you have to understand the cross. But to understand the cross, you have to understand the Trinity. But to understand the Trinity, you have to understand self-giving within the Trinity. So that from the experience, it is, it is upward. It is about God. It is worship. At least it ought to be. I had a friend many years ago confide in me that his uh, wife asked him why he was such a great lover. And his response to her was, it's my theology. Now I would suppose that's not something you hear often at the singles bar scene in Chicago, right? I don't think so. But singles and young people, listen to me. If you want to marry a great lover, marry a great theologian. And what I mean by that is marry somebody who wants God and his glory to shine in every dimension of your marriage. 
marry somebody like that. And oh, by the way, that also answers some of the other questions that seem to come up oftentimes about the kind of people that you should date. Because if you want to marry a great theologian, I would suggest you should date one as well. And unbelievers are not great theologians. Some Christians are not as well. That's a whole other message. Dare I say it this way? Okay, I'm just going to say it. Here's now my most provocative statement. I'm going to say it and then sort of move on, but here, here we go. Because it's true. And I think if, if, this, if word got out about this, we'd pack out ten services. <laughs> Christian sex ought to be the best sex. Why? A Christian husband and Christian wife trying to physically outgive each other for the glory of God is only an experience available in Christian marriage. Dogs can have sex. Husbands, Christian husbands and wives are artists of the transcendent. And so, be artisans, my brothers and sisters, to the glory of God. Third point. Similar to the first, Paul develops it a little bit more now. Marital intimacy protects the marriage. Here's verse 5. He just comes out and says it. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, and then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So there you have it. Do not deprive one another. So in contrast to the Corinthian married couples who were abstaining in their marriage, Paul makes it very clear that sexual intimacy is to be a regular and vibrant part of a Christian marriage. It is, it is vital that it is this. And he does make one accommodation. And to some people this may be humorous, but this is, at, this is what he says. That there are times when you cannot be together regularly, and that is if you need time to pray. Now, in all my years of pastoral ministry, I've never heard of this being the source of the issue between a husband and a wife. I've never had a husband say, she just prays so much. I've never heard that. But there are times in life when circumstances are such, a very painful, you know, trial, where to take the time that that, that intimacy would otherwise require and to put it towards prayer may be for the best. And Paul makes that accommodation here. But he says, don't do it for very long and then come back together again. So why are these so important? Second part of the verse is, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So again now, here we see that marital intimacy has a protective role to play in the marriage. One way to battle against Satan. Now this is, I mean, this how, I don't know how many people think about this, but, you know, we think about the, you read Ephesians 6 and the, the spiritual weapons that we have in our warfare against uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. I don't know how many people think about sexual intimacy as one of them, but that is clearly what Paul is saying here. It is a weapon in the battle against Satan because Satan loves to take desires and to corrupt them and powerful ones like sexual desire is so easily corrupted and tempted. And we all know that we see it every day. Now, again, a comment for the singles who are here, because maybe you've calmed down from the initial boiling point, uh, but now I make this comment, and Paul makes this comment, and the, your, the blood's sort of boiling again, and you're like, oh, what about us, and it's not fair, and why do they, and we don't, and all of that. Here's what I'd have to say to you. I feel your pain. 
And secondly, uh, Paul's going to have a lot to say about singleness in the coming weeks. Okay, He's going to get to singleness. But for now, let's not disparage the weapon that our friends have in this war. The Air Force isn't upset that the Navy has submarines. They're glad that the Navy has submarines, even if they don't have permission to go on board. That's my analogy. So there you go. We're glad about that. Happy for y'all. Happy for you. This is also a hard thing for a Christian who is married to a a, a non-Christian. And I want you to know my, our hearts go out to you in the complexities of what that means to be married to somebody whose desires are not refined by the gospel, who is not approaching this from a God-centered perspective. Paul's going to have, I think, some encouragements for you as well to come. My final comments are to the married people here. Please listen. Married friends, what Paul is saying here is that your sexual relationship is vital. It is not dirty. It is not, it is not sort of uh, secondary. It is vital to your relationship. And it is actually a kind of, of uh, thermometer on how your relationship is doing. Engaged couples, they get married or they anticipate getting married and they view sexual intimacy as being the thermometer. I'd say that right. Let me backtrack a second. They've, it, sexual intimacy is a thermometer. Engaged couples think it's a thermostat. In other words, they say, oh, that's going to be the thing that heats up the room. It's going to heat up our relationship. And then they get married, and what a shock to find out that you make love not to a body, but to an attitude. An attitude that has either been cherished and nurtured throughout the day, or has been diminished by selfishness, cutting respect cutting remark or whatever it might be. When sex becomes selfish, sex becomes sin because it is painting something about God that is not true. He is self-giving. He is not selfish. So couples, I want to ask you, are you committing a kind of blasphemy in the way that you relate to one another in your relationship? Men in particular, Do you approach your wife in this category like a tank bent on conquering? Or would she describe you as a gentle and understanding lover who puts her needs before your own? I would just say to you, if this is you, this is not something to sort of sit here and go, well, that's a nice thing to think about. Can't wait to get out of here right now. Because here's why. Because your wife who's sitting next to you, she knows She knows. And I would suggest to you that this is something to talk about with her. This is something to maybe confess to her, to ask her to forgive you, to ask for her to help you to understand her and her needs and and to do that. And I would suggest that if you did that uh, today, that you might enjoy a very rich theological experience tonight. (laughs) Women. A word to you as well. In years of pastoral ministry, you know what we come across often? Women, wives, who use this 
area to manipulate and to punish their husband. We hear stories of couples that are going months, sometimes years, without coming together, as Paul says in the passage. And I don't pretend to understand all the dynamics that go on with that, but here's what God's word says. Do not deprive one another. Are you in some way in disobedience to God in the way that you are relating to your husband? And I know that can go the other way as well, but I just want to ask that. And you're here saying, but if he was more selfless, it'd be so much easier. Well, listen to what you're doing. By saying that kind of thing, you are, you're beginning with his failures. You are not beginning with God. You are not beginning with God's will. If you start with his failures, you will be selfish just like he is. Begin with God and ask for grace to fulfill his purpose in your marriage. Here's the last word today. All about him. All about him. If you think this message today was about marital intimacy, if your friends ask you over lunch, you run into them at the restaurant or whatever, or across the fence in the backyard, so what was, your, what was the sermon about today? It was about sexual intimacy. You've missed the point! This is not a message about sexual intimacy. This is a message about everything is about God. And my desire would be if even this category is something when thought through carefully leads us to worship of God, perhaps all the other dimensions of our lives could be the same because everything is theology. So, final word. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or whether you drink, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Amen.